two Tuesdays ago, so the Tuesday before I preached last week's sermon on politics and government from Romans 13, I read the sermon that you heard last week to our elders of the church. And I did that for a couple of reasons. One uh, was to sort of get their feedback, and the other was for accountability. Um, is this, are we presenting the things that are accurate to the text? Are we talking about, we're talking about some controversial topics last week. I wanted to make sure that we were doing so in a way that our elders were aware of and that they had a chance to sort of prayerfully consider, uh, are we good with how uh, this is being presented? Well, during that discussion, as we were inevitably talking about the political season and the election and all of those things, one of the elders made this comment in acknowledging that this election season that we've just gone through has been perhaps the most acrimonious uh, and the most difficult in recent memory, and he asked this question. Are we going to need to take a shower when this is all over? They're just... There sort of felt like there was a kind of a, just a, a dirtiness as you've gone through this whole thing. And, and the fact of the matter is, the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> Romans 12 talks about the fact that it's so easy for us to have our minds conformed to the world's way of thinking. And when we looked at Romans 12 too, we sort of used this illustration of a large vase that represented our minds. And we talked about how as we simply go through life, that vase gets filled up with the thoughts of the world. And we represented those with little orange ping pong balls. And what we need is for God's spirit to pour his grace into our life to sort of push out all of the world's thoughts. Well, it's impossible to have gone through the election season that we just went through and not be influenced by the commercials that we've seen, by the debates that we've watched, by the media that we've interacted with, by the conversations that we've had with one another. And the fact of the matter is, is that in God's timing, where we are in Romans chapter 12, we have the opportunity to hear God's 10 commandments of love, meaning how God wants you and I to interact with each other. And really, for the past number of weeks, months, and even year, we have been bombarded with how the world thinks we ought to interact with one another, how the world thinks we ought to engage with one another. Frankly speaking, I was nervous about our older children watching the presidential debates as they were sort of assigned by their school to do. And I was nervous because I don't want my children to think that this is how people are supposed to interact with each other. I don't want them to interact that way with one another. And the point is, is that as our minds are filled with the world's thoughts, we need to hear afresh what God has to say about how we're supposed to interact with one another. And so this morning we begin what you might think of as sort of a detox process where for the next 10 weeks we're able to hear from God's word about what God thinks love looks like and how God thinks we're supposed to engage with one another. Now as we go through this series, it's on love. So it's applicable to all the relationships that we have. And so I'll be giving examples from various relationships, but what I ask for you to do is as you hear these 10 commandments about how to love one another, 
that you think through whatever relationships are most central to your life. That can be a marriage relationship. It can be friendships. It can be relationships between parents and children, relationships with extended family, relationships at the workplace or in school with your classmates. It can be relationships in the neighborhood. Wherever it may be, the great thing about the fact that these are commandments about love is they're applicable to every human relationship that we have. And that if you and I will allow not the world, but God to shape our thinking, all our relationships will experience the fruit of the blessing of God's way of having us engage with one another. Now primarily over these 10 weeks as we talk about these 10 commandments of love, we are focused on how we love one another and our interpersonal relationships. But it should not be lost on any of us that these 10 commandments are coming in Romans chapter 12, meaning we've just had 11 chapters of God talking about his love for us, and he is the example and the model for how we are to love one another. And so we're going to be referring back to examples of how God demonstrated his love for us so that we might love one another the way that God has loved us. So please take a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to begin this morning with the first commandment of love. Romans chapter 12 If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 920. 920, Romans chapter 12. We're looking together today at just one verse, verse number 9. Romans 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. This is the first commandment of love that God gives us in Romans 12. And to be honest with you, when I read that this week, I thought, really, this is the first one? Be sincere? That doesn't seem all that sort of epic or monumental or foundational or important. And I thought, how am I going to think of something to say about this verse for an entire sermon? However... Having studied especially the word sincere, I came to recognize and understand why God put this one first. And it's so appropriate for where we are as a country and as a people and as a church in God wanting to reshape our thinking and how to engage with one another. You see, the command, love must be sincere, That word for sincere is the Greek word on hupokritos. Now, if you listen carefully to the word, you may be able to hear that it's made up of two parts. On, which, if you're familiar just like in English, a or on or un, those tend to be negating words. So if we say atypical, it means not typical, or unorthodox means not orthodox. So on hupokritos. And if you hear carefully in that Greek word, you might hear the English word that is derived from it, which is the word 
hypocrite. To be sincere is to be a non-hypocrite. It's to avoid hypocrisy. And this first commandment is all about hypocrisy. When I came to see that, I realized the Bible has lots and lots to say about hypocrisy, and the person who talks most about hypocrisy is Jesus himself. So what we want to do this morning is spend some time coming to understand what hypocrisy looks like so that we might be better able to understand what sincerity looks like so that we might be able to do the opposite of hypocrisy and we might be able to engage sincerely or non-hypocritically with one another. To do that, I'd like to share sort of five aspects from the way Jesus uses the word hypocrite to kind of give us a fuller picture of what hypocrisy looks like. So five aspects of hypocrisy, and I'm just going to take them from five different passages uh, in which Jesus is using the word. The first comes out of Matthew chapter 23. Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. The first aspect of hypocrisy is the one we normally think of when we hear that word, and that is to say one thing and do something else. These Pharisees and these religious leaders were saying that they were for the prophets, but then they were persecuting Jesus, who is chief among all prophets. And Jesus is saying, the reason why you're a hypocrite is because you say one thing, but you do something else. That's the aspect most of us think of when we think of hypocrisy. We think of people saying something and then doing something different. That is most definitely an aspect of hypocrisy, but it's not the only one. The idea of hypocrisy is much broader and deeper. So let's continue to go forward. The second passage that I have for you is from Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, So when you give to the needy, Do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. The second aspect of hypocrisy is it's not just saying one thing and doing something else. Here, it's focusing on outward appearance and showing off for others. These people are giving what they said they were going to give, but the problem is the reason why they're giving is they want others to see what they're up to. Jesus says that's hypocrisy as well. 
if giving money to the poor is a good thing to do, you should do it whether anyone notices that you're doing it or not. Hypocrisy is doing it because you want people to see you doing it. So this focus on outward appearance, how do I appear to other people? And are they giving me credit for the things that I'm doing? That's another aspect of hypocrisy. Third, Matthew chapter 15. Jesus says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. A third aspect of hypocrisy is to say something that you don't really believe in your heart. And whether that's affirmations we make about God or about prayer or what we're doing in worship or things that we say to other people, hypocrisy is to say something with your lips that you don't truly mean in your heart. And Jesus says this is what hypocrites do. They speak with their lips but their hearts don't actually believe the things that they're saying. Fourth aspect, according to Jesus, of what hypocrisy looks like, Luke chapter 13. In Luke 13, it says, now the context here, excuse me, is that Jesus has just finished healing a woman on the Sabbath. This is controversial, and those religious leaders are coming and accusing him of breaking the Sabbath, and Jesus says, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Jesus is saying, look, you're using religious language and adherence, supposed adherence to the law to simply cover up for the fact that you're doing what you feel like doing. You want to rescue your donkey, well, then it's fine in the Sabbath to do that. You want to help this woman, you don't want to help this woman, you use the Bible to say that you don't have to do this. Jesus is saying hypocrisy is using religious language, using the scriptures as a cover for our own selfish interests. These religious leaders are doing what they want to do. They want to take care of their livestock because it's their livestock. They're not interested in this woman, and so they don't help this woman. Jesus says, you trying to wrap this all up in religious language? That's hypocrisy. Fifth and finally, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The fifth aspect is being able to see sins in other people and not in ourselves. Hypocrisy is the ability to see others' sins and not our own. 
Now, when you take these five aspects of hypocrisy, it's much fuller and broader and deeper than just saying one thing and doing something else, although that is very definitely part of it. And when you listen to what Jesus says about hypocrisy, I can't help having just come through this political season without thinking that this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. This is the kind of hypocrisy that is so rampant in politics. And this is one of the reasons why politics can make you feel dirty at the end of it. It's because there is so much of this hypocrisy, the ability to see the sins and mistakes of others, but not ourselves. Saying things with our lips that we don't truly believe in our hearts. Using the Bible or other things to cover over things that are really just our own selfish interests. Saying one thing and doing something else. Doing things for everyone to see and worrying about outward appearance rather than adhering to something as being good simply for the sake that it's good. And so it strikes me as not being an accident that as we've just finished this election season in which we have seen so much of this, that the very first thing God is doing to detox our minds is to say, love must be sincere. It must be non-hypocritical. Because after all, we would be the worst hypocrites of all if we simply saw hypocrisy in the political process and not first in ourselves. So today, we're not here to talk about politics. We're here to talk about ourselves and the ways in which politics may have influenced us to act hypocritically. But God's command to you and I is that we need to be sincere in our relationships. We need to be non-hypocritical. Romans 12.9 goes on to define that further. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Meaning, if something is evil, it's evil all the time and you should hate it all the time. If adultery is wrong, it's wrong all the time. It's wrong whether you're committing it or somebody else is committing it. Likewise, cling to what is good. Meaning what is good is good all of the time. And hypocrisy is thinking only the things that I do are good and affirming my, the good that is in my best interest instead of recognizing good wherever it shows up. And the truth of the matter is the reason why God has this as the first commandment is that there's nothing more damaging to interpersonal relationships than hypocrisy. And there's nothing more powerful for interpersonal relationships than sincerity. What does sincerity look like? Well, let's begin first with the example of God himself. God is most definitely not a hypocrite. The reason why Jesus uses the word hypocrite so much is because he is completely not one, and he's qualified to use it. So when we look back in the book of Romans and think about how did God love us, one example in Romans 1 to 3, God is very serious about sin. 
He talks about how all people are sinners and fall short of what God expects from each one of us. Now, the thing I find interesting about Romans 1 to 3 is that not only do Gentiles receive the rebuke of God for our sins, but Jews do as well. Now, the reason that might be surprising is the Jewish people are God's people. They are the ones that God has entrusted the law to. They are the ones that God has given the covenants and the patriarchs. They are the ones that have the temple and all the things that God has blessed them. I would have thought it would be in God's best interest to sort of whitewash the sins of the Jewish people so that God could say, look, Gentiles, if you will just have me as your God as the Jewish people have me as your God, then you would behave so much better just the way they're behaving so much better. It feels like it would be in God's best interest to say the people that are most closely associated with me are the morally best people in this world. But you know what the problem is? The Jewish people were not the most morally or the best moral people in the world. God is sincere and not hypocritical. He hates evil wherever it is found. There's this great passage in Ezekiel where God says to Ezekiel, if somebody who's done good all their life abandons the good and turns to evil, I will not remember the good that they have done, and I will punish the evil that they are currently doing. That's sincerity. God hates evil wherever it shows up. We don't get to rest on our laurels. We don't get to say, well, I got a pass. God doesn't wink at evil, whether it's in people who've been in Christians for a long time, Jewish people, Gentiles. God treats all of us the same. He does not play favorites. He does not whitewash the sins of his church to try to make him look better. He does not whitewash the sins of Jewish people to try to make him look better. The sincerity of God is what's evil is evil, and it's always evil no matter who it's found in. Taking that a step further, God says with his lips through his word, the wages of sin is death. Meaning, sin deserves death. Even when it means it will cost Jesus his life. Hypocrisy would be, yes, for you all the wages of sin is death. But when Jesus, God's only begotten son, is bearing the sins of the whole world, and God has to do the hardest thing he will ever have to do in all of eternity to turn his back on the one that he loves. He does it because the wages of sin is death. And when his beloved son, who has done nothing wrong, but is bearing the sins of the whole world, is hanging on that cross, God the Father does not have a double standard, a second standard for Jesus. Instead, he pours out his full wrath on Jesus, and Jesus, is, Jesus experiences literally hell. Because the wages of sin is death. 
Sincere love means God hates what is evil all of the time and he clings to what is good all of the time. God does not have a double standard. God does not make things easier on himself. He does what is right no matter what the cost. With that in mind, let me give you five suggestions today that will help you and I be sincere in our love for one another in the same way that God has been sincere in his love towards us. Number one, we are to acknowledge our faults to one another and confess our sins to one another. We are to regularly acknowledge our shortcomings and our faults and confess our sins to one another. Husband to wife, wife to husband, parent to children, friends to co-workers. Regularly acknowledge and confess our shortcomings and weaknesses. One thing that I find fascinating is if you go to the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark, and you read through Mark's story, One thing you come away with is, man, these disciples had no idea what they were doing. Mark's gospel, in fact, is incredibly hard on Peter. It shows so many of Peter's errors and Peter's sins and Peter's stumbles. But do you know where Mark got his information from? Mark was not one of the 12. He wasn't there when those things were happening. Do you know where he got it from? From Peter. (laughs) Peter's the one who told him all those stories. Peter is the one who instructed him. This is the kind of stuff you need to write about people. Here is this great apostle who his failures and his shortcomings and his sins are written for eternity in the word of God. This is an example of how we're supposed to be engaging with one another. How many of you feel like Peter is the apostle you can connect to? Peter is the one that you can relate to. Why? Because he acknowledges his shortcomings and his faults in God's word. And when you and I do that in our relationships with one another, it actually builds the relationship. Because listen, no relationship can work if only one person ever has any sins or shortcomings or faults. It will never, ever work. No marriage, no parent-child relationship, no friendship. If it's always somebody else's fault and never mine, that's not a relationship, and it will never work. And God says when we're willing to acknowledge first our own sins, that will bless every relationship that we're in. Do we not know this? If you're having marriage trouble today, And you go home and think through, Lord, show me what my sins are. Show me how I've contributed to that. And then you resolve to tell your wife or your husband what those things are and ask for forgiveness. Do you think that's going to help? Yes. God is saying this is true in all our relationships. If we're quick to see the sins of others and unable to see those in our own life, it will harm every relationship that we have. If we're quick to acknowledge our own sins and to confess those, 
it will bless every relationship. Number two, apply the same rules to yourself, to ourselves, as we apply to others. Parents, if you have rules for your teenage children or younger, uh, if you have rules about how to use technology, if you have limits for how, they, how much technology they can use, do you have limits on your own technology use? If technology is dangerous, it's dangerous all the time, not just for teenagers, but for adults as well. I get that as a parent, you may have different rules. I understand that. But if the rules are only for the children or for the teenagers, that's a form of hypocrisy. If dinners are supposed to be text-free, you shouldn't be taking your phone text at dinner either. Likewise, if in the workplace you expect that people respond to your emails or to your phone calls or they get their assignments done on time, that they do what they say they're going to do when people are working with you, are you and I doing the same thing when uh, people at home ask us or people in the neighborhood or at the church give us an assignment to do? Apply the same rules to others that we're applying to ourselves. If we tell people it's important to be committed to church, if we tell our children or our grandchildren, if we tell our friends or our small group, it's important to be committed to the church, are we applying that same rule to ourselves? Even when our child is able to be on this travel team that's going to be fantastic for them, but it means they're going to miss lots of Sundays, or when things are going on uh, on a particular Sunday that we don't necessarily uh, are that interested in or whatever it may be, we're going to apply the rules to others, apply them first to ourselves. Number three, beware and be cautious with social media. Social media, by definition, is hypocritical because it's focused on outward appearance. It's designed to encourage us to show off to others. If in your extended family there's lots of conflict and problems with your brothers and sisters and cousins and other people, and you simply snap a photo of a happy family with everybody smiling together and post that on social media, that's a lie. That's not really what's going on. And people seeing that picture and knowing that underneath of that there are all sorts of strife and tension is just going to drive the wedge further. Likewise, mom, if you take pictures of your beautiful infant baby only when he's dressed nicely and not crying and hasn't spit up all over himself and that's what you post online, it's going to drive a wedge with all the other moms who go, my baby doesn't look anything like that. Son. This is a mess. I can barely get out of bed. <laughs> That's what social media is designed to do. Grandparents, if all you ever do is post or tell stories about how successful your grandchildren are and all their accomplishments, all it's going to do is drive a wedge with other people who realize, but all kids got issues. All kids have something that they're struggling with, but social media is not designed for us to post those kinds of things. So beware. Notice I didn't say avoid it. I just said be cautious with it and beware. Social media is built on hypocrisy, the idea that we want to somehow present to others 
things about our lives for them to praise and acknowledge and like. Number four. Ask God to change your heart if there's someone that you don't like. Ask God to change your heart if there's someone that you don't like. Listen, if you don't like someone, there is no way to hide that. If you say one thing with your lips, but believe something else in your heart, that will be incredibly damaging. That's what we saw in that small group video. We have people coming in, oh, I love small group. You're such a great host. If that's not truly what your heart thinks, people know it. We may think, I put on a great show. I've said all the right things. Uh Uh-uh, Satan's going to use that, and that's going to come out. And if you don't like someone, they're going to know it. And the point is not, well, hey, let's all just be brutally honest with each other. The point is not you should walk into your small group and insult the hostess. The point is, ask God to change your heart. Ask God to help you see the host of your small group the way he sees them. As someone who's willing to host, as someone who's willing to serve. The food may not be fantastic, but at least there's food. And ask God to help you see that person the way he sees them. Because if you don't, all the nice things we say with our lips but don't actually believe in our hearts, that's just going to hurt everybody else. And no matter what, every single person in this room is a son or daughter of God. And if I ask God to help me view all of you the way I view my children, that's going to change my heart. Number five, don't use the scriptures to cover up our own selfish desires. For example, maybe you read or listened to the sermon on Romans 12 about spiritual gifts, and you thought, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm free not to be engaged in evangelism. That's using a portion of the scriptures and misapplying it in such a way to cover up the fact, look, whether you have a gift of evangelism or don't have a gift of evangelism, there are people who are dying without Jesus and they're going to spend eternity apart from God. We shouldn't be okay with that. And to simply use the, well, that's not my spiritual gift, that's just us covering up for the fact that we're not doing what God wants us to do with this, which is whether you got a gift for it or don't have a gift for it, you can pray for, you can love those who don't know Jesus. Likewise, if you say, well, I heard you say, hate what is evil, and I know that the non-Christian couple who live next door to me, they're engaged in an evil lifestyle, so I'm going to hate them. That's using the scriptures to cover up for your own selfish desires. You don't want to hang out with the person next to you. There are plenty of friends in your life and in my life who are doing evil things that we're fine hanging out with. But the people that we don't like, we want to use this as cover to say, I'm not going to hang out with them. But the Bible is very clear. If you're going to try to not hang out with non-Christians, you've got to leave the world. It's not possible. And God's attitude is, It's the lost sheep that need Jesus. It's those who are sick who need the physician. And when you and I take a scripture passage like hate what is evil and use that as a cover for, well, I'm not going to hang out with people who don't agree with me on certain things, 
That's hypocrisy. What will be great for that relationship with that neighbor is if even they already know that you don't approve of their lifestyle, if in the midst of not approving of the lifestyle, you demonstrate love, you ask God to change your heart, you ask God to help you see them the way he sees them, think what that's going to do for that relationship with the neighbor. If you use this and say, well, I'm supposed to hate what is evil, so I'm not coming over to your house, and I'm not engaging with you, and I'm not having anything to do with you, what's that going to do for the relationship? That's God's point. The more I've meditated on this, the more I've thought about this, the more I think, I think God knows what he's talking about. That hypocrisy is actually the fundamental stumbling block in all human interpersonal relationships. And the the reverse, sincerity. Being who you say you are, doing what you say you're going to do, asking God to change your heart. Not doing things for outward appearance. If it's good to give money to the poor, give money to the poor whether anybody notices or doesn't notice it. The more you and I engage with that, the more we love each other without hypocrisy and sincerely, every relationship will go better. Our time in this world teaches us to be hypocritical. God shows us a different way. And whatever relationship, marriage relationship, parenting relationship, friendships, small group, work, neighborhood, classroom at school, if you seek to be sincere and non-hypocritical, if you put these things into practice, every one of those relationships will go better. This is why the first commandment of love, be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, all of the time, in every circumstance, and every situation.